may be dismissed in the back with our volunteers to Children's Church. And those that remain with us and on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn to Psalm 98. We're taking a little break from our series in the book of Philippians. Philippians is known uh, as the book of rejoicing, the book of joy, because Paul commands uh, uh, his readers to rejoice uh, in that book more than in any other letter he writes. Uh, And as we enter into this Advent and Christmas season, I thought it appropriate for us to uh, consider that joy uh, from a different angle. And so we're looking at Psalm 98, the psalm that inspired the hymn, Joy to the World. So I hope uh, you like that hymn because we'll be singing it for the next few weeks. And we'll be looking at Psalm 98 for the next few weeks and at Christmas Eve. So I don't expect me to say everything about the psalm today. Uh, we'll be looking today at joy in receiving the king. Uh, next week, uh, joy in, um, well, I know what I'm, we're going to be talking about next week, but all of a sudden my mind went blank. Um, joy in receiving or recognizing his salvation. Joy in repenting uh, of sin and joy in responding to grace. Uh, So those are the four things we'll be looking at over the coming weeks. But today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 98 and considering how we might find joy in receiving the King. This is God's Word. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray that God would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see the joy that can be found in you. Lift Christ up before us that we may with unhindered eyes behold him and with unfettered hearts entrust ourselves to him. We can't do this on our own. And so every week we pray that you would be at work, that you would take your word, and that you and the power of your spirit would apply it to our hearts and our lives with power. Do this this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So what part of the Christmas season do you enjoy the most? Um, For some of you, maybe it's the music. And in October, you were already streaming Christmas songs in violation of all that is holy. For others of you, it's the lights, and you are spending countless hours stringing them up all over the places to put Clark Griswold to shame. Others of you like to gather around the fire, the food, the presents. Who doesn't like the presents? What, what, but what, what about the Christmas season brings you the most joy? I mean, all of those things are wonderful, and all of those things are good in their own way, but sometimes our, our focus on the trappings and circumstances of Christmas reveals uh, that human tendency to seek out joy in things or in circumstances. When the darkness of this season falls upon us and the sun is nowhere to be found, we want more light and we hope that it will lift our spirits. When the cold sets in and you have to wrap the spigots on your house and wear gloves and hats and it never seems to quite get the chill away, we want fire uh, to, to crackle and warm our hearts and our hearths and our spirits. We want presence to take our mind away from the things that we are wanting or needing. We want food to to fill us with comfort. And as wonderful as all of those things are, they can't ever fully satisfy. The fire dies down. The presents get opened and played with and forgotten. The lights go out because there's that one light bulb, right, that you can't find. And you just toss the whole strand. And and we know why. We know why seeking joy in these things is a passing thing. Why it, it always leaves us unsatisfied. Because there is a part of us deep down that knows that the joy we really long for isn't in the lights or the food or even the presence. It's rooted in the people. the people we love, the people we care for. Which is why the holidays are often so hard when we've lost those we love dearly because their absence is felt all the more. Which is why if you were given the choice between having every present you could ever want given to you this day or being surrounded by all of those who love you and that you love, you would choose the most humble of circumstances, the most meager of settings to be with those you love than to have all the gifts in the world. We recognize that joy isn't found in circumstances. No matter how many times we try to convince ourselves of it, it's almost always rooted in people. And so Scripture echoes this. 
pointing us to the source of eternal happiness, of true and lasting joy. By turning our attentions not towards our circumstances, not towards our prosperity, not towards any things of this world, but to a person, to the person, to the Lord, the King. Because it is only in Christ, the King who reigns over every circumstance, the King who owns all the things. It's only in him that we will ever find a joy that transcends every circumstance and every loss. And so this morning, all we are going to do is consider who is this person? Who is the Lord, the King that Psalm 98 presents to us? And what is it about him that could offer such joy that would transcend any darkness, any cold, any hardship, any sadness. And so I have seven things for you. We'll look at them briefly. I won't preach for five hours, maybe. There are seven things about this king. He's the king who works. He's the king who reveals. He's the king who remembers. He's the king who saves. He's the king who receives. He's the king who comes. And he's the king who judges. And because of this king, we can have joy. So look look at verse 1 with me and see that this is a king who works. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And we understand on one level this idea of working to do good things because we work to do good things. We want to to take hold of our circumstances and make them good. When things are broken, we want to fix them. When things get messed up, we want to navigate a way through it to, to a place that's better. But the more we try to make things work for us, the more things reveal that we can't do it. There is always going to be something that you face that you have no power over, that you can't just snap your fingers and make it go away. And that working, that that can be a good thing for us becomes twisted and an avenue for us to seek to control and to rule and to get our way. It is a a working that is rooted in fear. Like that old silly game, King of the Hill, where you're always scrambling. Everybody's always scrambling to get to the top of the slide or the top of the swing set or the top of the hill. And it doesn't matter what we have to do to get what we want. We'll throw everyone and everything down to get to the top. But but the king of kings, his working is not like our working. He doesn't play that game. He owns the hill. He rules the hill and he shows up and he says, all of you off, let me do something you've never seen before. And when he works, Everything he does is marvelous because he rules over everything. His right hand, his holy arm, 
are unlike anything in the rest of the cosmos. There is no power, no principality, no person that can stand against him or hold him back or say to him, what is this that you have done? And for all who believe, there is a joy in this truth. God is at work. No matter what darkness you face, no matter what burdens you carry, no matter what trials you walk through, your God has not stopped working. And when he works, it's marvelous. And there is joy for you in that. This is the king who works. He's also the king who reveals. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I like to know. It doesn't matter. I, like to, I want to know already who's going to win the football game, so I don't have to stress about it. I want to know what the answer is before I ask the question. I want to know what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. I want to know if the brisket's going to turn out all right. I want to know all the things. There's a certain comfort in knowing and thinking, thinking that you have a certainty. And so we strive to know, to predict, to prognosticate, to guess, to seek out and figure out what will happen if, what's going to come when, to know, to have a certainty so that we can make the right choices. And yet, if you live in this world for any length of time, two seconds or so, you'll find you don't know. You don't know anything. You have no certainty at all whatsoever. You don't know what Illness is going to befall you this moment. You don't know what's going to happen when you walk out into this world and get into your car and drive on the street. You don't know what the stock market is going to do. You don't know what war is going to start in some foreign land. You don't know what is going to happen to you, to your family, to your community, to the world. I think about those shepherds that we read about in Luke. Like what they were thinking about as they watched the sheep all night, like, what were, they, what were their plans? Is it, what, after we get off this shift, we're going to take the sheep to this place, hand them off to Bob, and then, hey, let's go get brunch. Or, or you know, were they just looking forward to a good night's sleep at home for once? Like, let me get this shift over with and be done. I don't know. I wonder sometimes what they were planning, but whatever they were planning went out the window because the angel of the Lord showed up and the heavenly host and said, God is revealing something to you that makes whatever plans you had irrelevant. That makes whatever certainty you thought you knew a, a mist and a myth. For there is born to you this day a Savior. God doesn't keep secret the things his people need to know. 
He doesn't always show us what the circumstances are that we will face. He doesn't always give us an outline of what trials will befall us in the coming weeks and months and years, but he always reveals to us everything that we need to know. He's the God who reveals. And what he reveals is salvation, is righteousness, is good news. Sometimes perhaps we are afraid to know what God is actually thinking. We, we are afraid to, to seek him out and to make inquiry of him because we don't, we don't want him to tell us what we don't want to hear. But when God reveals what we need to know, it's not always what we want to know, but it is always good news that he is the king who shows us himself who saves his people from their sin, who rules with a mighty hand. And for all who entrust themselves to him, there is joy in that. Maybe you don't know what you're going to do about this thing that is burdening you right now. But you know that whatever it is you do, There is nothing that can snatch you out of his hand, for he has revealed a salvation to you that he has wrought. Maybe you don't know how to help this person in need, a loved one, a child, a parent, a neighbor, a friend. But you can step into that knowing that God has revealed to you in his word what is true and what is right and what is glorious. And in all your uncertainty, you can step into that dark place with the joy that your God reveals himself with power and with clarity. And in truth, this is the king who reveals. He's also the king who remembers. We see this in verse 3. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. This is so important for us to remember. Because sometimes things get so dark, sometimes the burdens get so heavy, sometimes the days become so sad that we begin to wonder if our God has forgotten us and abandoned us altogether. You hear that echo in so many psalms. How long, O Lord? Where are you, Lord? And maybe your days are so dark, you wonder, has he just cast you aside? Psalm 98 is interesting in a lot of different ways. Some that we'll talk about in coming weeks. It's the only psalm that's titled a psalm, which people have tried to make a big deal about. I'm not sure what to make of that. But most scholars 
think that this psalm is written in response to God's people returning from exile back to Jerusalem, back to their homes. Something that all the nations could behold, something that God had promised that he would do, and something that in those dark days of exile, God's people might have wondered, has he forgotten us? But this psalm shouts forth with praise, he is not. He remembers his promises. He remembers his, his steadfast love. He remembers his faithfulness to Israel, and he acts. And the decades and the centuries do not cloud his memory of who he is and what he's promised to do and to be for his people. He is faithful to all his promises. And so whatever sadness may have befallen you, you can find a joy in this. Your God has not forgotten you in it. He abounds in faithfulness. He abounds in steadfast love, that great Hebrew word hesed that encompasses in ways the English translation cannot all the concepts of God's faithfulness and love and, and covenant surety that what he says he will do, what he promised he will carry out. And in the coming of Christ our Savior, we see those promises fulfilled again and again. That he has not only restored his people from exile back to the promised land, he has saved his people from their sins. And when he promises to come back and set it all right, we can know no matter how difficult the days are, that promise is sure and true and certain. He will remember his steadfast love, and his faithfulness to his people. He's the God, he is the King who remembers. He is also the King who saves. You see this in verse 3, where the psalmist exclaims that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Nobody could deny that God's people had been restored to the promised land. In fact, it caused no small amount of problem as the nations in their jealous rage sought to afflict and oppress God's people, even in their joy upon returning. But sometimes when we talk about salvation, we sort of wave our hands at it. And we don't fully comprehend the nature of it, because we don't fully comprehend the desperation of our situation. Yeah, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, and now I can, I can live for him. We might not say we believe that, but sometimes that's the way we live. Okay, I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle, I'm a Christian, I was baptized, but, and now i got to do all these things or else God's going to drop a piano on my head.
Sometimes we get into tough circumstances and we think, well, what did I do to deserve this? I thought I was doing well. But we, we might not say that's what we're thinking. Sometimes our feelings, our thoughts, our actions betray us that, that we don't really comprehend the desperateness of our circumstances. We become so self-reliant in our spirituality in navigating this world, we don't really recognize how desperately we need to be saved. I mean, imagine being on a ship and watching someone fall overboard and in, you know, animated gestures he's pointing up and you turn around and you see the little donut thing life preserver and you throw it down to him and he's like he's pointing it's like i dropped my phone throw throwing my phone so so he can like post something about it on twitter or facebook and while he drowns like like sometimes that's that's ridiculous right And yet, that is sometimes how we think of our circumstance, that it's not that bad. We can numb our sin, we can numb our guilt, we can numb our shame with social media or drink or sex or porn or whatever. We can handle it. We don't realize how desperate our circumstances are. But the Scripture says that the Lord made known his salvation, he had to work it. Like so, so dire are the straits that you're in, God himself, the creator of the universe, had to step in or you were lost. That's how desperate your circumstances are. And yet there's a joy in that. Because not only are our circumstances so desperate that we are lost, but our God has committed himself to remembering his promise to save, to revealing to his people that he has in fact done it. And he is working incessantly, constantly to claim a people for himself. He is moved to work for your salvation. There's a joy that our God is not too high and too lofty to stoop down and scoop us up even when we're drowning. He is the king who saves. He's also the king who receives. Have you ever done something sinful, wicked even, and thought to yourself immediately, I can't believe I just did that. And then wondered, what should I do now? I can't pray, can I? I mean, God knows. I I knew better. God knows what I did. I know what I did. I remember as a, a teenager, like trying to find a Bible passage to read to, to maybe absolve me of whatever it was that I had done. Maybe I should go back to church. Maybe there's something that I need to do. But what we see in this psalm, in light of a God who works salvation for himself and reveals it to a people in dire straits, he is a king 
who is not ashamed to receive those people into his presence. Look at verses 4 through 6. There's a call to, to sing praise, to make a joyful noise to the people and to all the earth. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Make a joyful noise, not in the outer courts. Make a joyful noise, not in the neighborhood six blocks away. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. In His presence, He has received you and invites you in. And I know we get a lot of invitations to a lot of things in the holiday season. And, and if you're like me, like it can be stressful. Like, how, how am I going to schedule this? And da, 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 da. It's easier just not to go. But inevitably, when I do go, I'm always glad that I'm there. So it's like, it's like I just have to get past the doubt and the fear or the shame to actually go and enjoy the presence of other people. And God extends an invitation to those he saved to come into his presence. Make a joyful noise. There is a joy in that truth that God wants his people in his presence. He doesn't hold us far off, but invites us in. He receives us. And when we think we are too far away, To see even where his presence might be found, we find in verse 9 that he is the king who comes, who returns for his people. As the centuries go on, it's easy to think that God is just distant. Maybe the deists were right. God's just a clockmaker. He set up the universe, wound it up, turned it loose, and maybe he'll check in on us from time to time. But where is he? There's a loneliness that can set in when it feels like God is nowhere to be found. Sometimes I think we're looking for God in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. Because when God shows up, it's it's never what we expect. He didn't show up in the earthquake. He didn't show up in the storm. He showed up in the still, small voice. He didn't show up as a mighty conquering king to crush the Roman oppressors underfoot. He showed up as a a, a lowly babe in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. He shows up as a spirit to dwell in the hearts of his people. And to make his glory manifest in their frailty. Giving his very light and his glory to jars of clay. That everybody might know that the surpassing power doesn't belong to the earthquake or to the storm or to the sword or to us. But to God. Our God is the God who shows up. He comes. He seeks out and saves the lost. He will return to set all things right. He isn't far at all. Our God 
It's the God who is named Emmanuel, God with us. And there is joy in that truth. That God is near. He is near to all who call out to him in faith. And no matter what the world may tell you, no matter what lies, the burdens your soul bears might try to convince you, your God is near. Because he's the king who returns. He's the king who comes for his people. Finally, he's the king who judges. Now, this might not bring joy to some of you because we want our own way and our own comfort. We want to be the king secretly and suddenly. But when we become the king, we rule with hypocrisy inevitably because we, in our fallen human nature, always excuse our own sins. We always blush over them. We always try to explain, well, you don't understand. This is why this happened. This is why it worked out that way. This is... But then we will condemn the same things in others as if they are the worst beings ever. But our king is not like that. He's not a judge who judges with partiality. He's not a judge who judges with hypocrisy. And he's not a judge who judges just for the sake of his own comfort or his own ego. We read in verse 9 that he judges with righteousness and equity. There's, there's so much rooted in this assertion. He doesn't judge in anger. He doesn't judge in malice. He doesn't judge in, in this knee-jerk reaction to just sort of get his own way. He judges out of his own holy character. He judges with righteousness and inequity. And he doesn't judge to destroy. He doesn't judge to tear down. He doesn't judge to eradicate or abolish. He judges to rule. To set things right. To bring truth and righteousness and equity to the world, to the nations, to the peoples. And so there is in this judgment a promise, a joy, if you will, for all those who call on his name. That when he shows up to judge, it's something we look forward to. Because he'll set it all right. Make no mistake, there will be knees that bow, whether they want to or not. There will be powers and principalities that are torn down. There will be enemies who are made a footstool for his feet. But he comes not to destroy the world, but to restore the world to the way he created it. To restore it to righteousness, to holiness, and to truth. When he comes as judge, he comes to set it right. 
So when we look out and we see every kind of injustice in our culture, in our community, when we see wrongdoing and wickedness even in our church and our families, there's a comfort, there's a joy to know that God is not far. God is not unaware. God knows how desperately we need him. He knows how desperate all of us are in our wickedness and rebellion. But he is coming, and when he comes to judge, he will set it all right for his glory and for the good of his people. And we can look forward to that with joy. And so... I don't have a long list of things for you to do by way of application this morning. There are other things that we can learn from Psalm 98 in the coming weeks, but this morning, this morning, we can't move on to anything. We can't consider anything else. We can't respond rightly if we don't understand who our King is. And we don't follow the admonition of that hymn, let every heart prepare him room. Let's not resist this king. Let's not rail against this king. Let's not second guess him or complain against him. Let us receive this king and respond to him with joy. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Give us eyes to see you, fresh and anew, to know your power and your might, to know your heart towards us, your people, to know your salvation and its glory, to know your holiness and righteousness and what that means for when you return. Help us to know you the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we might have a joy that transcends our circumstance, our troubles, even our own sin, as we entrust ourselves to you. Help us then to break forth with new songs, songs of joyful praise and adoration of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we ask this in his name. Amen.